Now, we will present the feature of the evening, the uh, address to be given on the action we are going to uh, undertake tomorrow. Our speaker of the evening is a native of Kansas City. In Kansas City, as a boy, he heard many reminiscences of the battle around Westport from those who had been there. He studied at the University of Kansas, Kansas State University, and the University of Colorado. A newspaper man for some years, he became dean of faculty of the Metropolitan Junior College of Kansas City and is now acting president. He's the author of a number of articles on the Civil War, author of short stories. He was the chairman of the Westport Centennial and author of Action Before Westport, which incidentally I read just before coming down to this uh, particular tour, and it's an excellent work, and I recommend it to all of you if you haven't already read it. This is the finest account of this neglected battle. He is the past president of the Kansas City Civil War Roundtable and editor of their publications. We have long wanted him to relate to us the last great action of the war in Missouri. It's our pleasure to present Dr. Howard Manet. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> anyone who has to follow Ed Bars as a speaker is going to come out second best. <clears throat> I hope I don't disappoint you too much this evening. Now, I know some of you are going to have to get out of here uh, pretty soon, and uh, when that time comes, if I'm not through, I'm going to stop right at that point and hope that we can <clears throat> finish this all up tomorrow when we take you around the battlefield there in Kansas City. Uh, yet last evening, Ed talked to you about <clears throat> the war here in Missouri and Arkansas in 1863, and tonight I want to sketch briefly uh, one episode in uh, 1864 in this particular region. <clears throat> the war in Missouri for the first half of 1864 was fairly quiet except for the constant guerrilla warfare that was going on but as far as large armies were concerned, or regular troops were concerned, very little fighting was done. However, much planning was at hand, nevertheless. Uh, I want to tell you about just one phase of that fighting in Missouri, the invasion of the state by Confederate forces in the fall and the winter of 1864. Now, this uh, invasion was in the form of a cavalry expedition, uh, very little infantry involved. It lasted from the 29th day of August, 1864, until December the 2nd, 1864. Uh, the Confederate invaders traveled 1,488 miles during that time. They fought 43 battles and engagements and subsisted entirely off the countryside. Now, from the standpoint of logistics, miles traveled and engagement fought, it certainly ranks among the great cavalry expeditions that, uh, that the Civil War produced. It was conceived in desperation, and its failure to redeem the state ended the Civil War in Missouri, except for uh, scattered guerrilla warfare. <clears throat> now, the uh, Confederacy in mid-summer mid 1864, as you know, was in a rather desperate state. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was wedged deep in the uh, trenches at Petersburg. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman was sidestepping his way toward Peachtree Creek, opposed only by the wily little Joe Johnson. And <clears throat> really the only force of any size 
that the Confederacy had that was still uh, mobile were the troops over here in the Trans-Mississippi. Uh, General Edmund Kirby Smith was commanding the Department of the Trans-Mississippi at this time. He had made efforts to cross the Mississippi and bring forces uh, to the aid of the Confederate forces on the east side of the river. But this was unsuccessful. <clears throat> and an attempt then was conceived to try to relieve some of the pressure on uh, Sherman and on um, uh, Johnson and on Lee. And so this raid was conceived. Uh, Edmund Kirby Smith did not have too much faith in the person he placed in charge of this expedition, Major General Sterling Price. Uh, Major General Sterling Price, at the beginning of the war, was quite a commanding and a striking figure, uh, quite erect, and uh, uh, courtesy and manner was, was most pronounced. But by 1864, the man had deteriorated a great deal. <clears throat> he had grown fat and flabby. He no longer had that sparkle in his eye that he had before. And he was compelled, most often, to lead his troops in a um, four-mule carriage driven by a little Negro boy. Every once in a while, he would mount his horse, but not for very long. Uh, <clears throat> General Price was placed in command of the uh, forces uh, by Edmund Kirby Smith simply because Smith uh, knew that uh, Price commanded the respect of Missourians that he was quite a political figure, and he was afraid of the hullabaloo that might arise if he was not placed in command. Uh, Magruder had been sent over here uh, to do this, but Kirby Smith did not turn the command over to him. Well, Price set out with 12,000 men. He called it the Army of Missouri. Uh, about one-third of this army was not uh, armed. They were mounted, but not armed. They expected to get their arms when they got to Missouri. Now, in the orders that Edmund Kirby Smith gave to General Price, he was told that what he was departing upon was a just and a holy cause, uh, that he was to try to recruit just as many men as he possibly could in Missouri. He was to try to capture, if he could, St. Louis. If he failed to do that, then he was to turn westward across the state and head for Kansas recruiting as much as he could, uh, capturing as many supplies as he could, and doing as much damage as he possibly could to Kansas if necessary. He organized his army into three divisions, one under General Marmaduke, the under, other under General Fagan and made up mostly of Arkansas troops, and the third under General Shelby, which contained his Iron Brigade, which was one of the most famous organizations of its kind west of the river. The army left Princeton, Arkansas on the 29th day of August, 1864, and crossed into Missouri on the 19th of September. The three, uh, the, uh, three divisions marched in parallel columns. Uh, General Marmaduke pr uh, proceeded with his division through Bloomfield as he worked his way north. General Fagan was in the middle, coming up through Martinsburg and Reeves Station, and General Shelby uh, on the, the west coming up through Donovan and Patterson. The three columns were to rendezvous at Fredericktown uh, in Missouri. They had with them a wagon train of about 100 wagons and a cattle herd of about 200 head. By the time they arrived at Westport in October, that wagon train had ri uh, risen to 500 wagons piled high with plunder, and the uh, cattle herd 
was up to some th between three to five thousand head of cattle. Now the three columns reached their rendezvous at Fredericktown on September the 25th. The march had been without incident except for a brief contact between a small uh, federal scouting party and General Shelby's troopers at Donovan and again at Patterson. As a result of these contacts, the Confederate position became known at the Union Fort in Pilot Knob, uh, where General Price was soon to meet the first organized federal resistance. Meanwhile, at Union headquarters in St. Uh, Louis, things were beginning to happen. Do you know at that time, uh, General William Stark Rosencrantz had been placed in command of the Department of Missouri. Uh, he was a, a very bitter person at this time. He was frustrated, just as were some of uh, his other commanders, who we'll find out in a minute. And uh, he didn't have uh, many, very many forces available here to him here in the state. He had divided the state into five districts. He had four district commanders on the job uh, fighting guerrillas. Uh, the fifth district commander was still back uh, on leave from the Army of the Potomac. Now, this particular district commander was General Alfred Pleasanton, you will recall, who commanded the uh, cavalry at Gettysburg. And uh, when he was replaced, uh, Grant replaced him with uh, General Phil Sheridan, uh, Pleasanton was sent out here. Pleasanton also was a very bitter and frustrated man when he came to Missouri. Uh, he was able also <clears throat> to pull in uh, about 4,500 uh, veterans of A.J. Smith's 16th Army Corps, who had been on their way to join Sherman. He had persuaded Halleck to uh, let these infantrymen remain here in Missouri and try to go after Price. Then he sent one of his brigadiers, uh, Ewing, uh, General Ewing, to pilot now to try to hold back the federal force until he could get some form of resistance organized. On September the 26th, General Price and his Army of Missouri swung westward toward pilot now the southern terminus of the St. Louis and the Iron Mountain Railroad. Pushing rapidly through the rugged hills, General Fagan's division of Arkansans led the advance and by the following morning had closed in on Fort Davidson, which guarded the federal supplies there at Pilot Knob. Now, <clears throat> Fort Davidson presented a very formidable defense against infantry and cavalry, but because of its position, it was extremely vulnerable to artillery and hexagonal fortification. Davidson was entirely surrounded by hills. It was garrisoned by 1,051 soldiers under General Ewing. Now, 562 of these were veterans from the 14th Iowa, but the remainder of them were simply Missouri militiamen, uh, very green and undependable. The assault on the afternoon of the 27th was made by General Fagan and General Marmaduke. Uh, they ran into very stiff resistance from the fort, and uh, Fagan's men suddenly collapsed and uh, fell back, and Marmaduke followed likewise, except for one of his brigades, uh, Cavill. Uh, Cavill's brigade uh, made it to the fort itself, to the walls, but that's as far as they got. Uh, and they finally had to seek shelter in uh, some nearby ravines, and there they remained until, until dark. Now, Shelby was not in the attack because Price had sent him north to see to, if he could cut off any federal aid that might be coming from uh, St. Louis. The repulse had been very quick and very decisive. The Confederate losses had been heavy, 
and Confederate morale as a result of this was hard hit. But inside Fort Davidson's walls, there was rejoicing in the midst of all the confusion. General Ewing's casualties had been about 200. Uh, these, of course, were not excessive, but they were more than the small garrison could afford. And General Ewing knew that he would either be compelled to surrender on the next day, or he had to get out of there somewhere or another. Uh, he managed to wait until dark. Uh, Marmaduke's and Fagan's division had gone into camp. About midnight, he placed uh, tents and cloth over the drawbridge of the fort to muffle the sound of the wheels of his artillery and the horse's, uh, horse's hoofs and the tread of his men. And he slipped out of the fort and uh, got in between the two armies and made his way to Caledonia. He had arranged for the powder magazine to be blown up, and long toward morning it blew. Uh, General Price thought that it had been an accident, and he went back to sleep, uh, confident that on the morrow all, all he had to do was to march into the fort, and the Federal forces were, would surrender. Uh, it took him until 8 o'clock, from daylight till 8 o'clock the next morning, uh, to get rid of his confusion. He was still under the impression the Federals were in there. Uh, when he found out that they had escaped, uh, he was filled with consternation, but finally got his troops underway and continued towards St. Louis. He got within 40 miles of St. Louis, and then suddenly old Pat Price lost his nerve, uh, probably because of the action there at uh, Fort Davidson, but in all probability, uh, Price uh, had no intention of just going to St. Louis and taking it and sitting down there. Uh, he still wanted, if he possibly could, to redeem the state of Missouri and get it back under the Confederacy. And uh, he turned, therefore, westward and headed toward Jefferson City, Missouri's capital. Passing through St. Clair and Union, the Confederate cavalry pushed on toward Missouri's capital, and by October the 3rd, they had occupied Herman, some 80 miles up the Missouri River from St. Louis. And during this advance from Fort Davidson, the rebel raiders had fought a sharp little skirmish at Union, Missouri, a small skirmish at Herman, uh, destroyed railroad bridges across the Merrimack, Moselle, and Gasconade rivers, and ripped up miles of railroad track, burned innumerable depots, and captured a supply train loaded with clothing and 400 sharp rifles. The latter were particularly welcome, for many of the Confederates were still unarmed. <clears throat> they were picking up recruits as they went along, constantly, but not in the numbers that Price had anticipated. By the 6th of October, the rebel vanguard under General Shelby had reached the banks of the Osage River, and here General Shelby again met heavy resistance and succeeded finally in forcing a crossing only after suffering some very severe casualties. At this place, uh, Colonel Shanks, commanding the Iron Brigade, uh, was wounded, and uh, General M. Jeff Thompson, whom J. Monaghan calls the Swamp Fox of the Confederacy, took command of the Iron Brigade. The next morning, Fagan's division took to the advance and soon ran into trouble along Marole Creek, a small stream near the outskirts of Jefferson City. Fighting here was furious for a short while until the federal militia fell back into the city's entrenchments, and the Confederates now, in the evening, stood on the heights in full view of the Capitol. Now, you will recall that Claiborne Fox Jackson had been governor of the state of Missouri when the Civil War broke out, a secessionist at heart. Uh, he uh, had 
been thrown out of office literally by uh, General Nathaniel Lyon's action here at Wilson's Creek and the fact that the Confederate forces had been driven from Missouri. Uh, Claiborne Jackson had taken his government, fled to Neosho, Missouri, uh, where they seceded from the Union, and then uh, took them on into Marshall, Texas, where he established the uh, exile capital of the state of Missouri. Uh, however, Claiborne Jackson in 1862 had died of cancer, and Thomas Randalls, the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor, has succeeded to the governorship. Now, Reynolds was very ambitious uh, to regain the governor's seat in the state of Missouri. The Lincoln government, in the meantime, had set up a provisional Republican government in the state, and um, Reynolds was going to get it back. He had backed this Expeditions of Price uh, really for that purpose. And uh, I can't prove it, but I suspect very strongly that this was the uh, dominating motive uh, on the part of General Sterling Price also. But Reynolds was doomed to disappointment and a bitterness that would never leave him. For the savage repulse at Fort Davidson was still fresh in rebel memories, and General Price and his men had lost all appetite for any more frontal assaults which they would have had to do if they were to take Jefferson City. So by the morning of October the 8th, old Pat Price and his great cavalrymen had turned their backs upon Jefferson City and Governor Reynolds' ambition and were marching westward toward Boonville. Thomas Reynolds, later on you will recall, when the expedition was over, brought charges against General Price for drunkenness and everything else under the sun, and Price called for a court of inquiry which met in Shreveport, Louisiana on the 23rd day of April, 1865. Uh, they were never able to finish the court of inquiry uh, because the war ended. Rosecrans, in the meantime, was getting his pursuit organized. He now had A.J. Smith's portion of the 16th Army Corps, 4,500 very hard-bitten infantrymen. And incidentally, these poor infantrymen, uh, which contained a number of Illinois regiments as well as a New York regiment, <clears throat> marched all the way across the state of Missouri from one end to the other, always a day behind, uh, finally wound up after Westport, marching over the field on the day after the battle, turned around, went, uh, marched clear on back across the state again, and uh, were loaded on transports and finally wound up in the Battle of Nashville in December. Uh, some of the diaries and the letters that these men wrote at this time are the most delightful reading you ever uh, read in your life. They're typical GI uh, complaint uh, of uh, having to march and the hardships they had to endure. Some of them quite funny. He also, by this time, Pleasanton had arrived in Jefferson City on October the 8th after Price had left. He found 4,100 horse soldiers in the capital and he organized them under General John B. Sanborn and sent them after Price as a corps of observation to delay the raiders as much as possible until other Union cavalry could be brought up from St. Louis. Now, Price arrived at Boonville on the 10th day of October. Now, Boonville was the regular bastion of Missouri rebeldom. In fact, we've still got a county there along the river called Callaway County that has never come back into the Union and it still prides itself on belonging to the Confederacy. His, his reception uh, there in uh, Boonville was 
uh, typical of the people along the river who were uh, very strongly for the Confederate States of America. They feeded and dined and wined them, and uh, from all the records, the army must have been totally drunk for the two days they were there in Boonville. They did uh, recruit about 1,500 young farm hands. They, they couldn't provide them with any horses, nor could they provide them with any arms. Uh, those young men, though, in their enthusiasm, followed Pat Price because they worshipped him. A few days later, they were to see the elephant there in the streets of, of, Saint Lu of um, um, Lexington and Independence, and were to many of them lose their lives in those engagements. It was also at, at, uh, here at Boonville that Buddy Bill Anderson and William Clark Quantrell uh, came in with their men to join forces with Pat Price. Uh, Pap uh, didn't want them. He tried to get rid of them. He sent Bloody Bill Anderson to cut the North Missouri Railroad, and he sent Quantrill out in the western part of the state to cut the St. Joseph and Hannibal Railroad. But at 10 o'clock on the night of October the 12th, the Confederate Army moved out of Boonville, made a night march, marched 11 miles to Choteau Springs. And when the Confederates moved, so did General Sanborn, and his blue-coated cavalry, always hanging on the rebel flanks and stinging like a gadfly. But despite Sanborn's stinging, General Price went on about his business. He sent small raiding parties into Marshall and as far north as Carrollton. And on the 13th, he sent General John B. Clark, Jr. with a cavalry brigade across the Missouri River to attack Glasgow, where it was rumored that the Yankees had some 5,000 guns stored in City Hall. Now, these weapons would more than take care of the 1,500 recruits that Price had picked up in Boonville. And at daylight the next morning, Shelby took a brigade of his division and went to the aid of General Clark by attacking Glasgow from the west side of the river. Now, this diversionary movement uh, might have succeeded if Clark and Shelby could have coordinated their attacks, but Clark's brigade ran into some difficulty in getting across the river and was an hour late in launching its attack. And this delay gave the federal garrison there in Glasgow sufficient time to burn some of the stores before it was forced to surrender. He sent other raiding parties, particularly Jeff Thompson's uh, Iron Brigade against uh, Sedalia, Missouri. But the halcyon days of the Confederate invasion were over. Uh, the Federals, organized at last, were upon Sterling Price and the Army of Missouri. And early in the afternoon, morning of October the 19th, they made contact and then began five long days of vicious fighting. Now remember, this was all a cavalry battle and it spread out over many, many miles. The ill-fated Army of Missouri was marching into a trap. Behind it was General Pleasanton with 8, now 8,500 veteran cavalrymen. On its right flank was the Missouri River and on its left were the veteran, veteran infantrymen of A.J. Smith. And in front of it was Kansas, the army of the border, and a shrewd, old, fussy Union general who had won the Battle of Pea Ridge back in 1862, Major General Samuel Ryan Curtis. Now, the, it had taken Rosecrans all of the time from uh, September, late September, up here almost into the middle of October before he could finally convince the people in Kansas that they were in danger of being invaded. Now, Kansas 
uh, takes his politics very seriously, and they were taking it seriously at that particular time. The national election was coming up, and Governor Carney uh, had one faction of the Republican Party, Jim Lane had another, and they were trying to win control of the Kansas government as well as the representatives in Congress and the senatorship. And they would not believe these stories, at least Carney wouldn't believe it, because he knew that Curtis was a Jim Lane man and that Curt this was simply a tale on the part of Curtis in order to get the men drawn away uh, from the state uh, during the election. And then besides that, the, Missouri, uh, the Kansans didn't have much use for Missourians, and they still don't. And uh, they weren't very anxious uh, to get across that state line and fight for Missouri. They were willing uh, if they got into Kansas, but they weren't going to do it uh, on Missouri territory. Now, General uh, Curtis's um, regular forces were way out in the territory chasing Indians. Uh, they were having a, a great deal of trouble with them at that time. Now, General Blunt's division, uh, General uh, Curtis's division commander was this James Gilpatrick Blunt that we met before and we met here again today. Um, he was out near Fort Larned, and Curtis was able to contact him. He'd been chasing some Arapaho Indians for about five days with the 2nd Colorado and the 16th Kansas Cavalry. Finally got hold of him and brought him back and sent uh, Blunt with what other forces he could uh, arrive at uh, toward Lexington, Missouri. And in the meantime, he finally convinced Kearney to call out the Kansas militia. And by this time, the 19th of October, some 18,000 Kansas militia were grouped along the border at Shawnee Mission, which I hope we can see tomorrow, and also up near Fort Leavenworth. Now, Blunt uh, met Price along the road to Waverly, just outside of Lexington, and there began this week-long running battle through 150 miles of western Missouri. But Price did not waver. He came right on. His intentions were to outrun Pleasanton, to sideswipe A.J. Smith, and then to overpower Blunt. He had two rivers to cross before he could get to the Kansas line. And one of them was the Little Blue River, and the other the Big Blue. He crossed the Little Blue uh, and uh, uh, fought in the streets of Independence on the day of October the 21st. It was a cold and misty day. There were four hours of some very hard street fighting in Independence, and many of these recruits that he had picked up at, in Boonville were killed in this particular engagement. Uh, Curtis, in the meantime, had gotten some more of his regular troops together and fortified the west bank of the Big Blue River which is just east of present-day Kansas City. Now, there were three crossings at all of the Big Blue. One was called the Hickman Mills Crossing, which is far south of Kansas City today. Uh, the other is called Byron's Ford, which we're going to visit tomorrow. And the third one was the Santa Fe Crossing, which was near the Missouri River. The Big Blue flows from the south end of the Missouri. Now, um, <clears throat> he thought probably that Price would try to come across the Santa Fe crossing, and he fortified that more heavily than he did the other. He sent the 15th Kansas and the 3rd Wisconsin uh, cavalry under uh, Jennison uh, of Red Legs 
fame to Byram's Ford, and they were to hold that if a feint should be made at that particular point. The Hickman Mills crossing he forgot completely because he thought that was too far south and that uh, Price was not headed in that direction. Well, on October the 22nd began the fight on the Big Blue River. Price made a feint at Santa Fe instead of Byram's Ford, sent Shelby uh, south to probe along the river to see if he could find some crossing. Uh, Shelby ran into a heavy attack there at Byram's Ford, was repulsed and fell back, then began to probe along the river and finally found a cattle uh, uh, ford, unknown and not plotted on the maps, and he was able to take his, uh, some of his cavalry across this cattle ford and come upon the flank of, General Gen of uh, Colonel Jennison. And uh, the Kansans, therefore, were pushed back uh, to Westport. They fled back across the prairie there from Byram's Ford and uh, pushed uh, Jennison with his 15th Kansas and 3rd Wisconsin almost into the streets of Westport. Uh, that night, panic occurred in Kansas City, and then for the first time, the Kansas militia began to cross the line and to pour in uh, to the little town of Westport. Uh, some uh, by Saturday, that Saturday night, October 22nd, he had uh, between Kansas City and Westport something like 20,000 men ready to meet uh, General Price. Now, the Battle of Westport was fought on Sunday, October 23rd, and it was the climax of this Confederate invasion. In the L, shaped by the junction of Brush Creek, which flows from the west into the Big Blue River, uh, the battle was fought. Now, Curtis' position was just reversed. In other words, he had pivoted around on his left. He was on the north bank of Brush Creek in front of West, uh, Westport, the little town of Westport. General Shelby and General Fagan and, uh, were up here on the bluffs above the south bank of Brush Creek, facing toward Westport. Uh, General Price had sent Marmaduke's division back to Byram's Ford, and they occupied the positions that Jennison with the, the 15th Kansas and 3rd Wisconsin had occupied on Saturday. They were to hold the ford there because they knew Pleasanton with his cavalry was very close at hand. Now, the battle began at sunrise on Sunday morning along the heights south of Brush Creek. And General Shelby's Confederate cavalry attack jumped off first and thereby gained some initial advantage. Then minutes later, General Curtis ordered the Kansans to cross the creek and to advance. The men broke through the thin ice. They plunged into the frosted woods and swept up the hills beyond. Now, almost at the tree-lined crest, they crashed into General Shelby's men and were thrust uh, back across Brush Creek. But these raw Kansas troops, most of them were militia, were not defeated. Reorganizing their lines, they charged again and again up those hills, only to be hurled back again and again across the creek. And the fighting along General Shelby's and Fagan's lines increased in intensity, and by 11 o'clock, the Confederates had gained the southern edge of Brush Creek. Uh, General Curtis scanned his lines and grew impatient. And far to the southeast, he could hear the rumbling roar and the pound of Pleasanton's cannon as they bombarded General Marmaduke's Confederate forces guarding Byram's Ford. 
Now, if these rebel invaders were to be turned back, now was the moment. The southern heights of Brush Creek had to be taken. So Curtis called for his horse, and he rode rapidly down his, his lines, rallying his men to a final charge, which he would lead himself. And at that moment, an old man, a citizen of Westport, <coughs> rode up to Curtis uh, on an old skinny, decrepit mule, and he offered to lead the Union forces to a gulch which penetrated Shelby's ranks. Well, Curtis accepted the aged man's offer, and he sent one of his finest fighting regiments storming up the hollow to flank the Confederates and start firing down the rebel lines. Well, the movement succeeded, and the rebels pulled back south beyond the next ridge as the entire Union line moved up and over the heights of Brush Creek. It was about noon, and for the next three hours, the high tableland and the sloping south valley of the ridge were to see some of the fiercest fighting of the engagement. Charges and countercharges, hand-to-hand combat, artillery duels, raged and roared across the open fields of brown frost-killed grass. If any of you have ever been in the capital of Missouri there in Jefferson City, gone in the Capitol building and seen the huge mural painting of the cavalry charge, uh, this is one of them that occurred in this little South Valley. The fighting in that little valley was very desperate. Uh, Rev and Yank lined up face to face, not 200 yards apart, and blazed away at each other, sweating. Uh, Union gunners horsed their pieces into action, while Confederate sharpshooters picked them off with many balls. The fighting swarms boiled and swirled in a choking cloud of dust. And then suddenly, parts of the Confederate line started to sag under the pressure, and some elements began to retreat. Now, over on the Big Blue, in the meantime, the dashing General Pleasanton had been unable to launch his attack before 8 o'clock. This was due to some difficulty he had with a couple of his generals, and uh, he finally put them both under uh, under arrest. Remember, uh, uh, Pleasanton was a West Point graduate. He was meticulous in his dress. He was every inch a soldier, uh, a bachelor. Uh, he thought nothing but army. West Point from head to heels. Uh, instead of wearing a uh, gun of any kind or a saber, he wore a rawhide whip on his wrist. And uh, <clears throat> whenever he got angry at any of his subordinates, he didn't hesitate to shake that in their faces. And he did that that morning because they were slow in get, getting going, but he put a good man in command, uh, Gen- uh, Colonel Winslow of the 4th Iowa Cavalry. Later, he was wounded uh, there at Byrams Ford, and uh, Frederick Benteen of uh, Little Bighorn fame took over at that point. They were backed up by General Sanborn uh, in their efforts there on the Big Blue. Slowly, but certainly, Pleasanton pushed his way across the ford where the icy water ran breast high. The boys in blue proved to be good targets for Marmaduke sharpshooters as they crossed that ford, holding their cartridge boxes and their rifles above their heads. But these 8,500 cavalrymen of Pleasanton's were, for the most part, veteran troopers, used to fighting on foot as well as on uh, horseback, and they waited the big blue. They raced up the hollow there at Byron's Ford and poured over the ridge of the ford, only to come to an abrupt halt. Ahead of them were uh, some 900 yards or more of open field, but beyond that was a ledge of rock some 10 to 15 feet high, 
surmounted by a very sharply rising hill behind which were Marmaduke and his men in gray. Now, Pleasanton was not to be stopped. After all, he had led cavalry against Stonewall Jackson and the dashing Jeb Stuart uh, back in Virginia, and he ordered the hill taken, and his men swarmed over it. But there on those slopes, more than 400 of them came to the high summit of their lives. And this was the real crisis of the battle, since with the collapse of Marmaduke's front, there was nothing for uh, General Price to do but to order an immediate retreat of all the Confederate forces. Uh, Shelby and Fagan, already hard beset by Curtis, could scarcely be expected to fight uh, facing in opposite directions, and it was only the superb leadership of General Shelby himself uh, that extracted his and Fagan's division, and with them the rebel army was saved from complete disaster. Tomorrow uh, we'll see that line that Shelby finally established. It's very curious that at the very end of the line where he had anchored his line, today he lies uh, buried. <coughs> As it was, the Confederate retreat that ensued took on much of the aspect of a rout. Um, for a short while, it was a pell-mell gallop, every man for himself, to a point where a string of stone fences offered some sort of shelter. And there until dark, Shelby made his last stand. He fought off the enemy and was able to rally the fugitives and withdraw in fairly good order toward the village of Little Santa Fe, which was on the old military road that led to Fort Scott. But 800 of his finest cavalrymen were left behind on the seared fields bordering Warnell's Lane. Uh, two days later, October the 25th, uh, again, uh, Price, uh, General Curtis, and Pleasanton now combined, Pleasanton taking command as the senior major general, and both of them were all the time uh, giving fits to General Rosecrans because Rosecrans was dragging his heels. He should have been up there taking the responsibility. He was always a day behind the army. Uh, he had made all kinds of He never did arrive uh, until uh, uh, the whole raid was all over. Um, he fought an engagement there at Mine Creek in Kansas, which was the largest Civil War battle fought in the state of Kansas. Uh, they caught him right there on the creek as he was trying to cross his, his wagon train, and they uh, literally blew it to pieces. Uh, General Marmaduke and General Cabell were captured at that point. Uh, later on, two days later, uh, three days later, on the 28th, uh, General Shelby again saved Price's retreating army at Newtonium, Missouri. But the federal troops pursued below Fort Smith, Arkansas, where Price swung into Indian Territory in Texas. Uh, in the meantime, Pleasanton had given up exasperated completely with Rosecrans. A minute. Second day of December, 1864, and the Missouri uh, expedition of General Price had come to an end. It's interesting to note that only 3,000 of the 15,000 men that Price finally wound up with in Missouri ever came back. Uh, they had traveled, as I said, this 1,488 miles, had fought 43 engagements, and lived completely off the land, which in reality was quite a remarkable feat. Thank you very, very much. Well, that sets the uh, stage for tomorrow.
Thank you very much, Dr. Manette. We appreciate very much uh, that you're coming down here to Arkansas, spending this time with us in our tour today and giving us this very excellent presentation this evening. We have always traditionally had a question and answer period following a talk such as this, and uh, we are certainly able to do that. Those who want to prepare to leave, uh, the bus leaves, as I said, at 9.30. So uh, if you wish to go ahead and uh, do something about packing or such, uh, you're certainly excused. Otherwise, those of you who want to leave are, uh, are again, going. Those who want to stay are very, very welcome to do so. I'm sure that uh, Dr. Manette will be glad to answer your questions. Mike? You told us uh, where Rosecrans was, but where was Price during that engagement? Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to show you tomorrow the various places where his headquarters were. He uh, divided his time between the uh, Byrams Ford, Marmaduke, and Shelby. Uh, late in the afternoon, however, he, when he saw that the whole thing was going to collapse, he went back uh, with uh, uh, General Cabell, who was boarding his wagon train and, and tried to take command there, left the whole thing to Shelby and, and his uh, division commanders. Quality of the leadership there was certainly excellent, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It's really surprising that I just didn't mark the peak. You know, when you consider what happened in other theaters. Yes, I think it was. Yes, sir. Dr. Benet, this is exactly the question. I'm going to go to the sequel. Right. 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 There are many gaps in this story. I, I just hit the high spots for you, but this was certainly one in his retreat. Uh, that retreat from Westport would make a book in itself. Uh, it, it, was, it was quite a remarkable thing, and the hardships that these men had to endure in the retreat. We just didn't have time to go into all the details. I'm glad you mentioned this. Thank you. Guilt twist. Yes, sir. Uh, you said that um, Christ Oldham Fat traveled in a for four mules and a party. Yes. And uh, I think uh, after the Battle of Lexington, he was old and fat and in the carries with four horses, maybe. <laughs> they clearly did, but I can't find... He took pity on uh, Colonel James Mulligan yeah. and his young wife. And instead of making pills, he hauled them along. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that, too. Uh, I have... Uh, uh, the accounts that I read in, in researching for my book, uh, they always described his horse, in fact, named his horse, and uh, what a figure he cut on the thing. And it wasn't, uh, <clears throat> except this in incident of Mulligan there at Lexington, and uh, the fact that uh, he, he rode in the carriage most of the time here at West Point, uh, Westport and uh, in his retreat, uh, 
uh, that uh, <clears throat> I know he'd, he'd gained considerable weight in the two years. Something was a matter with, uh, with um, Price physically, because you remember right after the, when the war ended, he fled with others to Mexico. Uh, he didn't stay there too long. He came back and uh, died uh, within two years after the Civil War was over. I want to ask another uh, What was this county that uh, remained Confederate? Callaway County. They call it the Kingdom of Callaway. I, I can't answer that. I'm, I'm not certain. Yes, I believe it is. I believe it is. Yeah. Yes. We may have to dedicate that or something tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't the whole expedition uh, doomed from the very beginning, from its very Oh, yes. I mean, if you look around in every direction, where could it be? It's the most, what, what could have happened? Very it's the real gallantry of the whole thing is of Price and his men. Yes. The fact that they, I think they even knew. Yeah, they just couldn't go I think they did. It, uh, it was futile. Uh, Edmund uh, Kirby Smith did not uh, have his heart in it. He, he, I'm sure, was convinced he could never succeed. He didn't support it like he could have supported it. Uh, he just let Price go his way and see what he could do. And it is remarkable that these men had this, this faith in him, uh, and in Shelby, and in Fagan, and in Marmaduke, that they were willing to do this. This concluded the meeting of April 21.